Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Random People Show. I'm your host, Sina Canada, and this show is brought to you by the Human Picture Initiative. You can learn more about the Human Picture Initiative at hpimedia.com. Today, you're traveling with me via the ubiquitous technology of Zoom to Chicago, And in this episode, you're going to meet Keith Walker. Keith is the co-owner and DP, that stands for Director of Photography, of Media Process Group in Chicago. Basically, he's the camera magic of Media Process Group, and he has all sorts of professional accolades. I give a rundown of that at the beginning of the interview, so I'll let you catch that over there. But keep in mind, it's just a brief summary and by no means a comprehensive look at the work Keith has done. You can learn more about him and his company, Media Process group at mediaprocess.com. Keith is a really cool laid-back guy, and I thoroughly enjoyed our virtual hangout. We recorded this interview shortly after the George Floyd murder, so we do talk about some of that, but we also talk a lot about Keith's work and his history and where he comes from. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with Keith. And after hearing this interview, I hope you follow up and explore more of Keith's work. Okay, I'm recording. Great. And we'll just have a conversation, Keith. There's so many things I want to ask you about. Um, just following you on social media for several years, even though we've never met. I just, like I said, you always have a really interesting, or at least you post really interesting perspectives on a variety of things in this current social, political environment that we're living in. I definitely want to dive into that. But before we do, I'd like to give our audience a little rundown. This is a very brief, I'm gonna read this back to you. This is a very brief, condensed summary of your bio. This is your life. (laughs) You have, I mean, you have worked with some of the most influential people in the world. You've worked with Oprah, Maya Angelou, Barack and Michelle Obama, Nelson Mandela, for goodness sakes. You've shot stories for 60 Minutes, 48 Hours, ESPN, PBS, HBO. You've worked on Academy Award-nominated documentaries, documentaries that have won Emmys, Peabody's, DuPont Columbia Journalism Awards. You've worked on stories in more than 35 countries, and Oprah has called you her favorite cameraman to work with. When you hear that back to yourself... What comes to mind? What do you think about your work in your life and where you are today? I'd have to say, first off, that I'm, uh, I'm blessed to have had the opportunity. That's what comes to mind first. Um, there are a lot of people who do what I do uh, in the world uh, and a lot of people who do it better than I do. Um, and only but by grace have I been afforded the opportunity to to have, you know, been in the company of what people may consider greatness or uh, uh, influential people of, of our time. And uh, I'm thankful for it. Do you get nervous when you're in the company of such great people? That's interesting. Um, actually, earlier in my career, I did. Um, and I remember distinctly... Uh, this was kind of early on in my relationship with Oprah. 
we were doing a piece uh, outside of the studio uh, on a plantation. And for some reason, I was with her standing alone for what seemed like five hours. <laughs> it was actually probably about you know, like a minute and a half to two minutes. And it was my, it was like the first time that she was someone who of that, of that statue and there's no one else around. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally there's no one else around. And it was early on uh, in our relationship. And I remember just getting a little kind of, kind of like, okay, what do I do? There's nobody else around. What do I say, you know? Uh, but uh, it's not like that anymore. Uh, I, at the end of the day, there are people just like you. They, they get up, they brush their teeth, they wash their, you know, their face. Um, you know, they have trials and tribulations just like you do. And so you treat them no different than you would treat, you know, another person mm -hmm. uh, that you come in contact with. And I think at the end of the day, most of them appreciate that as well. So let's back up a little bit and, and talk about your career and how you got started. Can you, it, it seems to me in doing a little homework about you and, or at least what I could round up on the internet that you've even back in your college days, you've had a real drive to do work that has some sort of social impact. Where does that come from? Uh, you know, actually to be quite honest with you, I did not grow up in a, a, um, politically charged environment. Uh, I had a happy childhood. Um, I had a mom and dad in the household. Uh, we would probably be considered to be kind of a middle income family uh, growing up on the south side of Chicago. I really honestly did not receive true political uh, nuances uh, until I hooked up with my business partner, Bob Hercules. And that was in college, uh, correct? Yeah, actually that was in college. Uh, uh, a quick story is that uh, I went to Columbia College in Chicago. Uh, it's a liberal arts private college. And uh, it was funny because when, when I grew up, my, my, it was always instilled in me through my mom and dad that I was going to college. There was like, there was no getting around it. It's like, oh, you're going to college. I mean, so, so I grew up with that <laughs> mentality, uh, which is fortunate because a lot of kids don't have that um, even today. And, um, and so it came to the point of picking whether or not I would go to school in Chicago or go away to a major university somewhere. And uh, I was really afraid that I wasn't savvy enough or um, I just didn't want to mess my, my mom and dad's money up. Mm. Uh, by going away and kind of messing up and partying too much. So I elected to stay in Chicago and go to school. And uh, turns out it was the best thing that ever happened to me uh, because at Columbia College at the time, the majority of the faculty uh, members and staff were still working professionals in the industry as well as, you know, part-time teachers. And so I not only got you know, theory and knowledge from a book perspective, but I was able to gain uh, knowledge, kind of real world experiences as of what's happening in the now from those instructors who were out there doing it. 
on an everyday basis. And plus it gave me the opportunity to network in the, in the community and in the city that I really wanted to stay in and, and, and have a career. Um, oftentimes a lot of kids uh, go away to these major universities, not knocking it at all. Um, but at the end of it, they just have a resume in their hand and they don't have any real world experience. Right. So I was able to kind of gain that make contacts in Chicago while I was, you know, in school for four years. And so in my senior year of college, uh, I took a, I think it was called at the time, a tech three class. And uh, I happened, the instructor happened to be a guy named Bob Hercules, who just started a new fledgling company, production company with two other uh, uh, cohorts of his. And uh, he loved my work and asked me, would I do an internship at their new company? I didn't have anything else to do. I said, sure. You know. <laughs> nice. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I graduated. And, uh, and then afterwards, they had um, got enough clients cobbled together that they actually could hire me full time. Uh, and it wasn't a lot of money, but it was it was decent money to start, you know, um, most, most people don't have that opportunity starting right out out of college, um, working. Um, mm -hmm. and so it was there that I really got a true sense of, of what the political life was all about. But let me backtrack one second. I do, now that I think about it, I had a little bit of it because, uh, when I graduated from high school, uh, it was the first time that an African-American had run for, for mayor of Chicago. His name was Harold Washington. And uh, I was somewhat politicized then because I was able to vote. That was my first opportunity to vote uh, in, my, in my, I think it was what, senior year in high school. Uh, and uh, I voted for the first African-American um, mayor of Chicago. Nice. Uh, so I did have a little bit before meeting Bob, but, but the real political uh, chops came from working at, at Media Process Group and uh, doing documentaries, socially conscious documentaries. And that's what really Media Process Group was formed to produce documentaries that had a social context to it and all of the other work, the corporate, the PR firms and all the ad agencies, all that stuff. It was great money, but it wasn't necessarily as rewarding as, as the documentaries. Right, it seems like all of us documentarians do the other stuff so we can fund our documentaries. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what we did. That's that, and even uh, today we have a non-for-profit entity or site, um, Media Process Educational Films. And all of our documentaries are, are, are funneled through there. And a lot of times the startup money uh, comes from the, the profit side of Media Process Group. So the model still works today. So if you, if social impact and working on those kinds of films isn't what brought you to filmmaking, what did? How, what got you inspired to be a filmmaker? Early on, I had a fascination with television. I was always interested in, in, in the mechanics of it, how it worked, you know, what people did, what, how shots were created. Uh, I remember vividly one time being on punishment 
<laughs> and my punishment was I, I could go outside and play, but I couldn't watch TV, you know? <laughs> so they, they got me exactly where it hurt. Um, but I've always had that fascination. And I, I started in photography actually in high school. Mm. My best friend at the time, Kevin Spite, who was a flight attendant still today, uh, and we're still, we're still good buds. Um, he, his mom had a, a Nikon camera, 35 millimeter. Oh yeah. And my dad had a, my dad had a Canon AE1, I think it was called at the time, um, uh, 35 millimeter camera. And so we, we came together. We were both, uh, you know, fans of photography. And, uh, and so we came together and we formed our first production company. It was called Walker and Spite Studios or something like that. Nice. Uh, and uh, <laughs> our first accounts were the pom-pom girls and the cheerleaders. They all, of course, wanted their pictures taken. Uh, of course. Uh, and that, yes, yes. Uh, so that was our first accounts. Uh, uh, I remember my dad came home from, from work one day and uh, we created a makeshift studio in his garage and so we had the backdrop paper and everything and <laughs> he comes home one day a little bit early from work and all these girls just like parading through the house <laughs> he's like you know <laughs> what, what's going on? <laughs> what is going on and uh and it was like, you know, a nice it, job son <laughs> yeah exactly uh so it was like uh, i think we had like seven or eight of the pom-pom girls over it was all professional of course you know it was it was work it wasn't pleasure but that's how I developed my, my, my eye for, you know, composition. So what did your parents think about this whole like interest that you were having? They were, they were fine with it. They just basically wanted me to make sure that I got a good education and I went to college. Okay. What major I did was they didn't, they didn't really care. They just wanted to make sure that I went, went to that next step and got my college degree. Well, it worked out. I mean, going to media process group right after college um, clearly worked out for you because of where you are now. Can you give us a little insight to that? So this is our 35th year anniversary at media process. Uh, for me, uh, I guess technically it's, it's my 33rd year, but the business is 35 years old. Uh, I am co-owner with uh, Bob Hercules, who was one of the original founders of the company. Um, the other two, uh, one left probably in the mid nineties, um, for health concerns, uh, and moved to Florida cause Chicago, the, the weather was not really good for his, his, uh, allergies and whatnot. And, uh, and also I think Dave was a real, his name was Dave Beaton. Uh, Dave really only wanted to do social conscious documentaries. And Bob and the other business partner, Bruce, realized that we, we could, you can't survive off of that. You know, you've got to do the corporate, you've got to do so many other things to kind of, and I think he really only wanted to do documentaries. So between that and also his health concerns, he, he left the company. And uh, I took his place as a business partner. And Bruce Lixie, the third uh, founding owner, unfortunately, passed uh, of colon cancer at the age of 38 some years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, so it's been myself and Bob and uh, we've always been a boutique uh, production company. Um, we've had editors on staff, but presently we do not uh, have a uh, staff editor. We just use freelancers and uh, we have a production manager 
another DP and a graphic designer uh, slash IT person. For a boutique production company, you guys have done some pretty big projects. How do those, how do you come, to, how do those come to you? Uh, some of them are things that, that we come up with ourselves uh, or pr productions that, that, that we formulate ourselves, I should say. And then others, people come to us. In some cases, uh, our, our first entree uh, actually with uh, President Obama was through David Axelrod, who was one of his key advisors and also kind of like his campaign guru. Mm -hmm. uh, we had done work political spots for David Axelrod's uh, production company back before President Obama ran. So he was the one who actually got us involved with, with uh, President Obama. And um, take, for example, um, the Maya Angelou documentary that, that we did, um, that was born out of my business partner, Bob, and at the time, our office manager, we're just having a conversation. And uh, I don't know if something had come up about Maya Angelou. And both of them kind of asked each other, has there ever been a documentary about Maya Angelou? And so, you know, they did some research and realized that there had never been a documentary, a true documentary on her life story. Wow. And, you know, the light bulb went off. And that started the process of trying to uh, you know, getting in contact with her people and uh, forming a relationship and uh, the rest is history from that standpoint. You, so you've been doing this for 33 years. It's a lot of work that, that has, I'm guessing, evolved. I'm guessing your, your business has evolved, your mission, the purpose. Do you have a particular personal mission statement that you have seen evolve over the years and that you have a good definition of now? I think the driving force for us over the years has been um, the ability to tell a good story. And that's really been the, the, the driving force of, of what we've been able to accomplish over the years is just, just tell a story. No matter what medium you're working in, you're just trying to convey a good story. What about you personally? Do you have, I mean, where where are you headed with your work kind of given what your personal mission is, your personal mission statement? I don't know where I'm headed. That's a, you know, I've never been one to be honest with you. I, I've, I, and maybe this is a, um, probably a, um, a downfall to, to my career as in terms of where I'm at, cause maybe I could have been a lot further along the path, but I've never done mission statements or, um, uh, or, um, what do you, what do you call it when people kind of put collages up? Oh, uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't do and it they either. Kind of like they, they, they chart their course and they put inspirational people from, they cut out stuff from magazines and all I that. know what you're talking I've about. I've never, I've never done that. Uh, and I don't, I'm not she, she poo pooing people who do it. It's just never been something that I've done. And I've really, other than early on in my college career, I do remember one thing in terms of plotting a true course that I had to decide on. And that was whether to go into video and television or whether to go into film. 
Mm. Because back back then, the two really weren't blurred together like they are now or right. merged together. And then you had to either take film courses or television courses. You couldn't do both. And now I think that's changed in, in academia where they're kind of, um, you know, kind of blended together. And I said to myself, do I really want to be, if I did film, do I want to, do I really want to be in a, a, a six by six room splicing film together uh, on a moviola trying to make a deadline? <laughs> or do I want to go with a pneumatic three quarter inch tape and pop it into an edit machine and just go, you know, da 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 da. And I, and that's what made me go the TV direction that, you know, I don't know if you want to say mistake or <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the one thing that, that took me on the path that I'm at today, because I honestly think um, that if I had chose film, I wouldn't have stayed in Chicago. I would have probably tried to make it in, in LA and who knows who I, I really don't know what, what would have become of that. That's probably the only thing that I really think about today uh, in terms of a fork in the road, career-wise, what if I had done th this versus that? Yeah, the whole uh, board that you were just talking about, the inspiration board, whatever those are called. That's what it was, inspiration board, yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. I think so, yeah. I, I think there, and I agree with you. I mean, there's there's use in those, and it's great that people do them, but I think it also lends itself to being a little bit close to the possibility your life can evolve in ways you can't see. So if you limit your life only to what you can see today, what are you closing off to? And it's interesting to hear you say, maybe I could have been after reading that bio and looking at your bio and looking at all the things that are credited to you. It's interesting to hear you say, maybe I could have been further along because you are, I do. Yeah, I, I do believe that. What would what would further along be to you? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know right now. Uh, it seems I like you're pretty you far at, along. I, I, well, I think if you look at accolades, you know, I, I don't have an Oscar. Um, and and I've never let me let me preface this by saying that I've never ever gone into a particular production or, or project saying, I got to, I got to do X, Y, Z so I can get nominated for this and nominated for that. I've right. never done that. And it's probably a downfall because I probably could have um, entered things into many other, you know, contests mm. and probably, you know, won a few more accolades here and there, but I, that's just, I just don't do that. I don't do it for that. Mm. Um, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think I think I maybe would have elevated to you know higher heights, um, you know in the in our world, there are levels of of you know production value and quality sure. and everything. Yeah, sure. And so if you're doing a major motion picture movie that's you know seventeen million dollars, sure, that's certainly higher than a documentary that um, that costs eight hundred thousand dollars so i mean there are differences in terms of you know the, the production value and the levels that you work on now would i have gotten the same um satisfaction 
out of that, doing an action picture with, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme or, you know, or somebody like that? Probably not. So um, I think there's more value and there's more of a reward and satisfaction with doing a social conscious documentary at the end of the day. I do. So, and I don't beat myself over it. You know, I don't wake up saying if I could have, would have, should have. I've never, I've never, you know, done that because that really doesn't get you anywhere. So I'm not beating myself up. Right. I'm just, I'm just wondering where, what would, what, what, what would the trajectory have been if I had chose film versus television? Versus television. And you're right. I mean, when you talk about production value, that's an interesting way to look at it because there's also social value, legacy value. And right. so what's the difference between my legacy value and my, and the social impact value of those two different things? Yeah. There's a monetary difference in terms right. of what you can dump into that. So do you feel like your ability to just kind of take it as it comes it has been an asset though also? I think so. But I, I've, I also think that when you prepare for things and you have a strategy and you, and you strive for that strategy and, and set, you know, set goals and you achieve them, I think you, you are a better person for that in the long run. I've applied that to, to my career a little bit, maybe more than a little bit. Um, but I certainly, I certainly think that I could have done better. Do you take on interns? Yeah, yeah. We actually have interns uh, every semester. How does that advice look when you talk to them? The first thing I do uh, with an intern, uh, actually our, our production manager, Lisa Pooler, she, she, for the most part, hires the interns. And, um, uh, and the interns are really primarily geared towards uh, on location production work. Mm. Um, we have some interns that want to be more of an editor, but we kind of stray away from, if they still want to work with us, that's fine because they should know all forms of, of the production. Um, but we tend to try to get people who want to be out in the field because we, um, that's where my experience lies. We have editing at our office, but I'm not an editor. So I really can't school them on that or, or uh, give them best practices. Um, but the, one of the first things I do with an intern um, is when they're hired is I ask them what their focus is, what they want to do with their, with their career uh, and where, they, where do they see themselves um, in the next five to, to 10 years. Uh, and after every shoot, I specifically asked them what did they learn and if they can't come up with anything that means I failed them on that particular day because they should have learned at least one thing hmm. um, and that's one thing I've always done with all of our interns after every shoot what'd you learn today what'd you learn today what'd you learn today sometimes most of the time it's rewarding that they've actually learned something that was really good about the industry and then sometimes they can't think of anything and I'll say, well, what about this? And what about that? Um, and it could be just little bitty small things like looking at how we interact with a client. Right. Um, um, the, the ability to um, uh, 
interact with, with different personalities on the set, um, your temperament, and all those things uh, either will break or make relationships, you know, down the road with, with, with people in the industry. Right. So you have to, you have to, uh, you have to teach them how to navigate that because every personality is different and um, you can't treat people the same way, this, this, you know, at the same time because everyone's, everyone comes to the table with a different disposition. How does that look for you at this point in your career and your life? Do you feel like you still have opportunities to learn new things? Absolutely. Um, I often say that um, if I've gone for a long period of time and I haven't grown myself, then I need to reevaluate what I'm doing or I need to challenge myself more. Um, because I think in, in, in this industry, we should um, do what doctors do and, and uh, lawyers, they say they're, they're, they're practicing yes. professions um, because they should always be learning something new and we should as well. Um, one of the things that I like to do as, bet, as much as possible is be on sets with other DPs mm -hmm. because um, sometimes we get into a rut in terms of doing something the same way over and over again because it worked the last time and the last time before that and before that. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it <laughs> mentality. But there's so many different ways uh, of, of lighting a scene or, or setting something up that you didn't quite you know, know about or think about um, until you saw someone else. And kind of like being the DP on the set, if you're not collaborating with anyone else who has, you know, who's allowed to have, you know, another vision, basically the buck, the buck stops it at, at your doorstep. So you're not really growing unless you invite other people into your circle to say, you know, how would you like this? What would you do differently about this particular scene? Um, and if you're not able to do that, then the other, only other way you can do it is to immerse yourself with, with other people in the business and see what they do in certain situations. I've really hit that place at this point in my career, especially this last year, I just being really kind of locked into a particular way of working in a context that I've just come from, from so many years. And I was like, man, I've got to, I've got to work with other documentarians. And I got involved in IDA and started just like I, talking to people, like, can I come volunteer on your project just so I can like be around other people? Yeah, <laughs> it's been, yeah. But it's actually been really great. It's been really, really useful. And it's given me kind of a, another surge of motivation and inspiration. That's great. Yeah, That's absolutely. Good. So, oh, I mean, you said earlier that you're not real sure where your work is headed, but do you have in mind any kind of new projects or any new things you'd like to tackle to challenge yourself in that way? I, well, I have dabbled in, in uh, shooting narratives. I've done a few of them. I think that's probably the one thing that I'm, I'm lacking uh, in, in, you know, in my portfolio is the narrative world. Mm -hmm. And um, 
one documentary that we worked on uh, back two, three years ago was uh, a documentary on the Baha'i faith, uh, which is, uh, it's, a, it's a little known religion to some and to others, it's like a really big deal. Um, but the Baha'i faith is, is basically a religion that kind of comprises uh, the good stuff about all forms of religion. They kind of take a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit that, and they bring it into their, into their own. Um, and so um, there is a, a, the executive producer of, the, of this particular documentary, um, um, Steve, he commissioned us to actually shoot this doc for him. And it was the origins of the Baha'i faith. It led us to, uh, uh, to actually do a lot of reenactments, uh, which was more along the lines of, of narrative filmmaking right. um, than the true documentary work that we did. So, so this particular doc was kind of like a hybrid between narrative and, and you know, and documentary, kind of true documentary uh, um, genre. Uh, and so that led me to, to want to work into that world a little bit more. Um, did you enjoy it? I loved it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I really did. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, because, you know, like the whole dynamic changes in that scenario. When you do um, um, that type of shooting, uh, in our world, we, we, we're basically, we, we do it all. You know, we light, we shoot, you know, we drive, we, <laughs> we make the coffee. <laughs> I put makeup on people, you know, everything. And in that world, you're dedicated to doing specifically your particular job. Right. And um, I will tell you that I got used to this particular uh, aspect of it extremely well. As soon as you stop recording, someone there is to relieve the camera off of your shoulder. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, you've got, you've got an AC, and as soon as they say cut, the camera goes away, and right before you roll, the camera comes back on your shoulder, and you just, and on the really big sets, uh, well, not necessarily big, but depends on the budget, you've got another AC that's, that's basically controlling your, your focus for you wirelessly. And so all you're really doing is composing the shot. That's amazing. And it's, and it's like... You know, why didn't I, how come I didn't choose the other path back in, in college? <laughs> You're like, I can get used to this. <laughs> I can get used to this. Uh, but, you... but I like, I like bouncing back and forth between different worlds. And even, you know, every, even with documentary, we don't do, everything I do is not documentary. So um, I like the fact uh, that I can bounce back between genres, back and forth between genres, because it makes it interesting and fresh to me. If I only did 60 minutes, if I only did documentaries, if I only did TV shows, um, you know, like the, the, the Oprah um, TV shows and things like that, I would get bored as hell. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be able to bounce back and forth because when you come back to that particular genre, you've got, you know, you've, you know, you've got a new set of eyes on, you come re revigorated, um, and maybe you learned something from the other genre that you can now put into this particular genre. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be able to bounce around. 
Do you have a narrative in mind that you would do if you could just focus on producing a, a narrative, a feature? If you um, the only thing that's been in my mind lately is, and I don't know why this is, but um, as of, of late, um, um, it's, there's been, it's probably, be, how can I put it? So this has been a, a fascination of mine um, to do a narrative about a man that became a woman. Oh, wow. That is about to be married and her to-be husband, who is a minister, does not know her former life. Wow. What got you interested in that story? I don't know. I saw it on a streaming show, um, but it was about drag queens in the in the eighties uh, during in New York during the AIDS epidemic. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the name of that show now, and I can't remember it. Um, I think there's been two seasons now, and I and I really got really hooked up and involved in that particular uh, in that series. But that's what's been on on the back of my mind, and and I even had like a, a cool title. Um, that I formed that I won't mention on here, but okay. <laughs> we'll be anxiously waiting. But, yeah, yeah. So I've been thinking about how how to do a short that could possibly then turn into a uh, an actual you know film. That brings in a lot of. I mean, that type of film could bring in a lot of conversation coming at different directions to those issues. Did you grow up in a religious environment? I did. My religion is Baptist, uh, although I am a, what you would call a backslider now. I'm familiar with this term. Okay. In the assemblies uh, of God. <laughs> so I don't, I don't actually go to church. My wife and I, we don't go to church anymore, but I grew up in church. I met my wife at church. Her family and my family knew each other and we came from the same church. And so I have a history uh, church service. Uh, I sang in the choir back in college and even into my career, professional career. I was director of the television ministry at the church that I was affiliated with. Mm -hmm. And um, that was my way of, you know, kind of giving back, if you will, uh, with my talent. But I kind of got, um, I don't want to say, I, maybe a disillusion to, to a little bit um, over the years um, with organized religion. Mm -hmm. And for those who really embrace it, I'm totally fine with it. I have no, I have no problems with that. It's just that for me, I kind of got away from, from the organized aspect of it and went more into um, internal, mm -hmm. uh, more spiritually based and not really organized religion based. Okay. Even though I, I have tons of friends that are still affiliated and my, my uncle <laughs> is a minister. I have brother-in-laws who are ministers. Um, it's just, uh, we just decided to take a different path at this particular point in time. Right. I have a, I can empathize. I come from a family of ministers. I started my career actually in shooting photography and video and editing for the world missions headquarters for the assemblies of God. Okay. My, so, so you, so you, 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 you know, from which I come. 
you know, for me, it was it was like, you know, um, certain things I didn't necessarily, you know, believe in. Um, I was okay with you know someone being um, you know a homosexual, mm-hmm. but my religion was telling me that that's not that's you know that's an abomination and a sin and this and that and uh, and you know I just and 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 also the church that I uh, grew up in didn't allow women to 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 be ministers, which right. I thought was absolutely you know asinine. Yeah, it's like. So there, there were things like that that just kind of made me go, ah, um, I'm gonna um, not not choose to to follow that. So, so, but having that history and growing up that way, has that informed your the way you work or the things you do? Do you think? I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, I have a really good foundation and I think it comes from the church. Um, and what's interesting is that um, my mom and dad, their social outlet was the church. Yep. Because all of their true friends went to the church. And so um and it, it didn't really, I didn't really think about this until many, many, many years later. And, and when I started in my career and I started traveling the world and I started thinking about things differently and realizing that the world was bigger than my backyard or my front yard or going from here to the church, that's what made me realize that there's more than one way to think about things. There are other ideas. Um, you should be, be accepting of a lot of other things that maybe your church does not want to accept because this is a big world out here. Um, and maybe God like is, maybe God's bigger than what we've been given. Yep. All of that, all of that and above. Um, that's what made me come to, to how I think today. But some of my best friends um, came from the church. Um, and so I don't, I don't knock it. I think it was a good foundation um, for me. It kept me, you know, on the straight and narrow <laughs> and off the streets, which I appreciate. Um, and there were a lot of good people, you know, really good people. Um, and so, uh, I think it was a blessing for me to have had that, 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 that foundation. Did, when you and your wife stopped going to church, did that cause a lot of conflict or rub with your friends and family? No, actually it didn't. Nobody, no, no one, you know, every now and then it would be like, Hey, when you coming back to church, you know, um, or, but no one has really actually stopped to say, how come you're not in church anymore? No really? one's ever asked us that. Yeah, which I found kind of fascinating. Wow. Um, and because I kind of, I think people, I think people probably have their own, uh, they have a form, formulate their own opinions about it. Um, and they maybe don't need to ask me. Um, 
but you know, I'm an open book from that perspective. I have no problem. If I can tell you in right. a podcast, I can certainly tell them too. In terms of what my feelings are, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them any differently than what I'm telling you. Right. And it, and I'm, I guess it makes a difference too. Were, were you and your wife already married and kind of on your own and, and doing your own thing before you stopped going to church? Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, you're fine. Do you need to grab it? Nope. Okay. Um, what, was, what was your question? Well, I was just saying, I'm sure it makes a difference if, you know, like if you and your wife are already married and sort of on your own and doing your own mm-hmm. thing before you stop doing that or yeah, I, yeah, I would assume so people react was, differently. Yeah. I was in my, we were in our mid thirties. Oh, right. Mid thirties, maybe going in the forties when we stopped completely cold Turkey. And, and also for me too, it was a little bit more of an escape goat for me was my career. Oh, right. It was also at the point where I started doing a lot of traveling mm. and I was gone a lot. And that precluded me from actually, you know, being involved with the TV ministry because I was gone after time. Right. And so at that point, it just slowly became more and more of not necessarily attending and being a part of. And then, you know, kind of like before you know it, you, you stop going. Right. Okay. So. Well, I'm going to, um, I'm going to divert us at some point to start. I, I would like to delve into our current state of affairs before we leave, um, really di- diving into your work. You mentioned the other day on the phone as a director of photography, you don't often, you're not interviewing people. You're generally behind the camera and you're with somebody who's doing the interviewing, but you told me a story of the one opportunity that you were able to slide in a question. Can you tell me that story? Mm-hmm. So some years ago, I had the um, opportunity to work with uh, director Steve James, who um, probably his best claim to fame was uh, Hoop Dreams. Um, since then, he's, he's directed a lot of great, great films over the years. Uh, but uh, he was actually doing a 30 for 30s documentary, ESPN 30 for 30s series docu on um, the basketball player, Allen Iverson. Um, Allen Iverson and Steve grew up in the same city at different time periods because Steve is uh, much older than Allen Iverson. Um, but nevertheless, it was the same city. Um, James grew up on the white side of town and Allen Iverson grew up on the black side of town. They both had a love for basketball. And um, at some point there was a, a really big to do uh, uh, kind of like a, a racial, not a war, but a racial unrest in the town. And, uh, and so Steve's documentary, documentary was going back home, revisiting um, his hometown, also talking about Allen Iverson's life um, and kind of combining both within the doc itself. And, uh, and, and so Steve, in many of his documentaries, he kind of narrates it and, mm-hmm. he, and it's because it's his personal story. And so at one point I was filming him on camera talking about him growing up kind of playing with black basketball players uh, on his team. And uh, I asked him, did he ever want to be black? 
growing up. And he, and, and I'm, I'm just filming him. And uh, it just, the question just kind of, just kind of came up in my mind. And I just, I was just curious, you know? So I asked him uh, and it wasn't live. So we could, you know, he, obviously he could edit around it. Um, and, but he ended up putting my question into the actual cut. Mm. And, um, and he, and he goes on to talk ab about it. And, but, I don't think anyone had ever asked him that before. What was his answer? Uh, he said, yeah, at times I did. Hmm. Um, and I think it was purely, it wasn't based on, I think it was based on sports because some of the black ball players had better moves, had better style, had better, better rhythm and flow. And he wanted to emulate that. So I think on that, from that perspective, yes, he did want to be black uh, growing up at some point in time. Um, and so that, that made, so when he presented the, the rough cut to ESPN, um, that, that was in the film. He included me asking the question in, and then ESPN came back to him and said, well, who is that person asking the question? And they thought it was odd that you didn't see who it was. And in documentary work, especially verite work, that happens all the time. I mean, you know, you don't have to show the person. Um, and, uh, and it was, in order for him to keep it in the film, they wanted him to go back and reshoot me asking the question, which we thought was asinine, but it's like, you know, whatever. So did you, did you guys reshoot it? Yeah. So uh -huh. we shot, we shot me asking the question, which was, I mean, it was, just, it was stupid. You know, you think about, you think about, and I don't know who was running things back then, um, <laughs> but you, you look at the, the Michael Jordan doc now. Um, I don't know if you saw any of it. I haven't, Final I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Throughout that whole series, there are people asking Mike questions off camera and you don't know who it is. Of you know, you not. just hear this, this, you know, um, and this voice from, from the background. And so it's like, it was, yeah, it was so absurd for them to say, well, you got to turn the camera around. And I don't know whether or not it was because I was black. Oh. I don't even know if they knew if I were black or not. I don't even know. I have to ask Steve, well, you know, did it come up in the room that, that the guy asking me the question was black? I have no idea. Oh, interesting. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that was my only entree into Question asking after. questions. <laughs> after, I mean, you have been around such amazing people doing amazing work. Does that ever, I mean, I'm sure you're full of questions or are you just so focused on what you're doing that you don't think about it? But I mean, I would imagine, like I've in my- No, 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 the, the, let me tell you, good directors will, will, will um, once they're done asking questions in a documentary, they will ask the, the team members, hey, you guys have any questions at all? Right. Because it could be something that we've, that, you know, it could be the stupidest thing. It could be the, the, the light bulb question that gets that person Absolutely. on the other side of, um, in front of the camera to really go off on a great tangent That's of something. Right. You never know. And so the really good directors will include um, the DP or the audio person or some of the other technical people in the room because, you know, we, I, I think that most of us, we're not just there to, to set up 
and you know hit the record button and then we you know we just we just on our iPhones until the end of the interview right. we are engaged as well right and you know especially if it's uh, if you're if you're filming uh, as a DP it's so important for you to be listening to the conversation mm -hmm. especially when you're shooting verite because really what you shoot and how you shoot is dictated by a lot of times what they're talking about What's happening, and what right. they say mm -hmm. and how they say it. Right. And so um, you really have to be, you know, keyed in. And I, I find it really fascinating when you have some, some camera operators who refuse to put headphones on to, to listen to dialogue. And it's like, how could you, I mean, your, your actions are based on what they say. Yeah, that doesn't even you know, make sense. It's, yeah, so if I see, uh, you know, young upstarts in the industry and I see them doing that, I'll tell them, you, you, you've got to listen to the, you got to listen to the content because that's what drives what you shoot and how you shoot. And, you know, um, it's also one of those things where uh, depending on who you're working with, you have a comfortability uh, level with them that, and, and they trust you as a seasoned, you know, veteran um, that you can maybe, you know, brainstorm and come up with, with different ideas and uh, go back and forth. Um, I do remember, I've never shared this. I've never shared this back during Katrina. Um, when Katrina hit, there were a lot of TV shows that went down to cover the story. We did a special one hour. I think it was a two hour. It was a two day special on Katrina. Mm -hmm. And so we flew down in a private plane. I think we landed in Baton Rouge uh, because all of the uh, airports were completely um, you know, flooded out in New Orleans. And so we had to drive into New Orleans. And this was, this wasn't like a free show. This was more of a verite. Sure. You know, you had, you know, one camera op, uh, you had a sound tech, you had our producers, a couple of producers and her, that was it. It was like, you know, kind of like how we really tell stories. Right. Um, and so we're in the car together in the SUV, we're driving and one of the producers kept saying, refugees these the people who were displaced were and she kept saying refugees refugees and it was really bugging me yeah and i was like these aren't refugees these are fellow americans who have been displaced from their homes right. not displaced from their homeland That's which right. is you know, it's two different things that's what a refugee is they get displaced from their, their homeland and they're now seeking you know, asylum or, or refuge or whatever in a different, a foreign country, if you will. Mm -hmm. She kept saying refugees and then, then was starting to say refugees too. I honestly don't know whether or not she was saying it just because the producer was saying it or if, or if she was going to then get out the car and start saying that as well. At the, I felt comfortable enough to say something but it was just one of those moments where you don't know if you're crossing a line. 
because certain producers don't like you to, you know, you like stay in your lane. Right. Yeah. I, I hate it when an audio person's trying to tell me how to like. Right. <laughs> it's like, I got this, you know. So I'm good, dude. <laughs> and, and so I can appreciate that and I understand it. And, but it was just bugging the hell out of me. It was like, I can't, I cannot let this go. And we were about to, we were maybe about 10 to 15 minutes from getting out of the car and we were about to interview the police chief at mm-hmm. the time. Right because he was waiting for us at this roadblock. And I was like, do I say something? Do I not? And I just said, fuck it. I'm just going to say it. I have to say it, you know? And I, and I kind of interjected and I was like, I don't know if we should be calling them refugees because they're, they're not displaced from their homeland. This is, this is their home. Mm-hmm. And it was like that EF HUD commercial where everybody stops and you don't hear anything. And I'm <laughs> And I was like, oh, shit, I have just <laughs> put my foot in my mouth for the last time. <laughs> Everything else after that was kind of like a blur. It's like I can't remember what happened. Oh, no. <laughs> but I do remember there was not an – okay, so there was not an acknowledgement that I was right, but it was also not a shut the fuck up, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, so they didn't – they weren't like, they, oh, Right, we shouldn't no say one, that. No one, it was just like everyone stopped, but then the conversation continued, but no one really said, oh, you're right. It was just kind of left out there. Huh. And I didn't know whether or not, there was like, okay, this is my last shoot with <laughs> 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 It's been a good run, see you later. <laughs> um, but she got out of the car and she said, displaced Americans or something <gasps> like that. But she did not say refugees. I'd like to say that I help in that scenario in some small way. I honestly don't know because no one ever said thank you for saying that, mm-hmm. but who knows? Maybe I'm, yes, maybe no. I'm guessing you probably saved the perception of that show because had you, had you let them say refugees, for those of us who know the difference, that would have really impacted how we perceived that piece. So I can say yeah. as an outsider, you definitely yeah. made a positive yeah. impact. <laughs> because, I mean, if you go actually, if you, you know, go back and do any file footage, there were some, um, there were some people, um, news people who started saying refugee and they get their hair, they get, they got their hands banked about okay. it. And then they stopped. So that could have been around the same time as people, you know, how mm-hmm. sometimes, a, a particular phrasing starts That's right. and then everybody in the media just kind of picks up on it and runs with that same phrasing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was around that same time period, if, if you will. So I don't know if I, if, if I contributed to it or not, but I do remember the story. Well, whatever makes for a great story. <laughs> okay. Speaking of impact, um, let's kind of dive into this current social and political environment that we're living in. And especially knowing your background and where you come from and storytelling and not only being a part of so many stories that have impacted our American society, but just observing them and being a part of that. What are the conversations that you and your friends or you and your family are having right now about this current situation? So interesting, um, as you probably know, a lot of people in my industry 
are not my skin color. And uh, I have, over the years of my career, I can count probably, it's been better as of late, but earlier on, I was always the only black person on the set. Yeah. The only one. And so I've learned how to navigate in that world um, to the point where it doesn't bother me or I put, you know, I kind of turn that, that part off and I just do my job and I don't worry about it. I remember early, early, the likelihood of seeing a black DP was not the norm. And I would meet with people for the first time in different cities and they would think that I was the audio guy or the grill. And they wouldn't, because you know, you meet with somebody and there are three or four people standing around and everyone else is white and I'm the only black person there. And in, in, in our genre of, of shooting, the DP is pretty much kind of like head of the, the posse, if you will. And they would, not knowing who was who, assume that I was not the DP wow. and just start talking to somebody else. And then I'd have to avert their attention. You know, I, I'm the guy who you should be, you know, addressing. Hmm. Uh, I didn't let it bother me. You know, it is what it is. Um, I, I, you know, I've never been the angry black man or I've never been radical because I didn't grow up that way. And I've never been in a situation that made me want to be radicalized. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, I think early on, even from a police perspective, I've been stopped and frisked once in my life uh, by two white cops. And, um, it was right outside my house, actually. Oh, wow. And I was in high school and we were driving home, me and a friend, and he pulled us over right in front of our house. I was parking and they made us get out of the car and they, and they basically, you know, made us do a, do the hands, spread hands and legs and they searched us. We didn't have anything, you know, it's like, um, and there was no reason to stop us either. I didn't make a, a wrong turn or, uh, you know, anything. Uh, it, they just stopped us to see if they, what they could find. Hmm. But other than that, that's the only time that I've had like a run in per se with, with cops. And I also knew early on how to talk to police officers. It's interesting how in, in, in our culture now, parents have to have this conversation with more so their, their black sons about what do you do if you get stopped by a police officer? And it's called the talk. Back when I was growing up, the talk was the birds and the bees. <laughs> As it relates to parents. And now the talk is not about, you know, sex. <laughs> it's about, have you talked to your kid about you know how to act you know if a police officer stops them what do you do how do you how do you how do you navigate that particular um scenario and so i've always had the ability to you know if i did get stopped um anytime after that well let's put it this way it's because i should have gotten stopped because i either was speeding 
or, you know, driving too fast or whatever. Uh, but when I have gotten stopped for moving violations, um, I know how to, I, I know how to talk to officers, mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't disrespect them. And, um, and for the most part, they haven't disrespected me. And it's not like I'm kissing ass or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, there's just a certain tone that you have to, or respect that you need to give them. And I'm okay with that because, you know, because they have a badge. Now, what I'm not okay with is the ones who abuse their privileges. Right. I am, I'm not okay with that at all. Um, and that's where we are at today is the, the bad apples that need to be discarded you know, from the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had talks with a few of my uh, friends in the biz. Actually, it's one audio guy who's a really good friend. He's, he's, he does audio. His wife is a nurse. They live in a community that's for the most part, maybe 80% uh, white with maybe 20% black. And um, we've been having a really good dialogue because he really, really wants to know how I feel in this whole scenario, which I can appreciate. So he's um, white. Yeah. 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 Okay. I should have prefaced that. Yeah. So he's a, he's a white guy. Um, and I, and I appreciate that and we can have good dialogue and discussion and he sends me clips and I send him clips on some YouTube things that, that, that have been out there and addressed and, and uh, for the most part, we, we are in agreement on, on everything. I shared with him a clip from, I'll send it to you. I don't know if you can include this in, in, in your program or not. But, I can put it in the show notes. Okay. This black and, and, and it's riveting. Oh, my God. When you see her, she was a protester. And she basically gives everyone a history lesson on race in America within about two to three minutes. And it was really geared towards black people like me who are like, why are they looting and rioting and stealing? Because that's not part of my DNA. That's not, I don't, I don't believe in doing stuff like that. I believe in, in marches and, and civil protest but I just, when it comes to vandalizing, throwing bricks and windows and stealing stuff that's not yours, I can't get with that. And so her comments were basically geared towards me, another black person, asking the question, why do you have to go to that extreme? Um, and she breaks it down on a level that if you can't understand this, then you just need to just, I don't know, if you can't understand it, um, something is literally wrong, you know, with how you process. But she she goes back in history, and she uses this analogy with a white person, a white person and a black person playing Monopoly. The white person gets to go around the board four hundred times before the black person gets a start. And the 400 times represents 400 years of slaving. And when you think about it from that perspective, you're like, ah, 
it makes a lot of sense. And even, you know, my white friends can't, they can't deny that at all. They're like, yeah, you're right. You know, we got a, we got a fucking head start, like nobody's business. Okay. But then she starts to bring in when blacks did get the opportunity to start trying to do for themselves. Mm -hmm. You have two major incidents in, in, a, in American history where black thriving businesses and communities were completely decimated by white mobs. Right. That sets you back even further. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on to talk about how the game has never been fair and it's always been rigged against us. And at a certain point, you lose all hope. And so the analogy is, uh, you know, is here's a black kid who throws a, win who, who throws a brick through a window. Mm -hmm. The first thing people say is, why did you throw that brick through the window? What, what, you know, that's shame on you for doing something like that. That was a stupid thing to do. But the real question is, what was the mentality that was given to him, either growing up or reared or throughout the decades that would make him think that that was the only thing he could do to actually get a response from people? Right. That's the real question. What is the mentality? What, how did his mind get to the point where he thinks that that is going to solve the problem? Not, why did you throw the brick? Right. And so she, she breaks it down even further than I could possibly even do it. And, 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 then, and then she said, you know, at the end, she was like really defiant. It's just like, you know, you can burn this motherfucker down because we don't own it anyway. And I was like, wow, wow. Um, and so she made me reevaluate how I think. And I still, I still don't think it's right to do it, but I think you have to ask yourself the question. If there had been peaceful marches throughout the country without the violence that ensued, would there have been change right now? Mm -hmm. That's what you have to ask yourself. Exactly. Do you really think NASCAR would have banned all Confederate flags if it weren't for uh, corporate pressure at this particular point? And that corporate pressure came from the violence that ensued after the killing of, of Floyd. So, I don't know. I think there's a, there's a place for it hmm. because at a certain point you can only do so much nonviolent protesting before people will, you know, make changes. And sometimes violence is necessary to invoke change. I don't necessarily prescribe in it, but I get it. You know, I get it. We've seen a lot of it in our, well, not a lot of it, but we have seen powerful moments in our history do you think this time will be different? I think so. I think, I think in, in, in American history, you take one step forward and you take two steps back. You take a couple of steps forward, then you get pushed back. You might stumble forward a little bit 
Um, I like to think that we're on a forward trajectory right now, and I want to stay positive. I think now is the time to actually make steps that will better our society in the long run. If it had not been for these three events that took place, you know, within a matter of, of, of weeks, if you will, the black jogger, the woman in New York City in the park who weaponized her, her whiteness against the black man with, you know, illegally walking her dog. Right. <laughs> and then George Floyd, if it had not been for those three, like in a row, and then I also think the pinup frustration of the pandemic with people being locked up in their homes, if you will, for that amount of time. If it hadn't been for those three in a row, bam, 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 I think it would have been no different than any other. And also what makes this different is if you look at the video, the look on that officer's face when people were telling him he cannot breathe, please take your neck, your, your, your leg off of his neck, the look that he gave was a look of defiance, arrogance. Think of a thousand more adjectives you can throw in. It was, that, that look was like, I have all the power in the world. You are recording me and I will still get away with what I'm doing because I'm a, I'm, I'm a cop. And on top of that, I'm a white cop. That was etched in people's memory and they couldn't get that out. I couldn't get that out. I went to sleep looking at his eyes. Mm. It was like, you know, they're pleading with him. And it almost seemed as that every time they pleaded, he just kind of dug in a little bit deeper. That, if that had not been captioned on video, I don't think we would have gone to this level. But it was that video that made people say, this enough is enough. That's right. Enough is enough, you know. So, um I think that the, there will be change. I don't know how much. I think the pressure has to be stayed on. And um, I also feel like in many respects, a lot of the cities are kind of pinned up and hemmed up because of the contractual agreements that they have with, with, police, uh, with the police unions mm -hmm. that are binding. And I don't know how they get out of that. And and I do, I, especially here in Chicago, the police union, you know, top guy is such an arrogant asshole. Um, and of course, he is, his job is to, is to support uh, the officers under his care. I get that. But there is, there's a difference between supporting an uh, officer because they maybe did something and didn't quite do things the right way. It was, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a smack on the hand as opposed to supporting officers that you knew did wrong, did it with intent and did it because they know that you're going to back them up 100% whether it was right or wrong. Right. You can't, you can't, you can't back those people up. I don't care because a bad apple will take the whole tree down. And that's what's happening at this particular point. So 
I think I think the biggest fight now coming up will be the unions. Mm. Um, and how do we get the unions to to not, not back police officers that are not that shouldn't actually be having badges, you know? Mm. They shouldn't be on the force. So that's it, that's the that's the that's the next that's the next step. Did you see that Chris Rock? piece about how why we can't have bad apples in certain industries oh you'll have to check that out i missed that one it's great i mean he's it's basically like there's some industries you cannot have bad apples and you can't have an airline industry was like you know a few of our pilots are that's the idea that that was one of the analogies you used right right yeah right right Uh, you know you know he's okay some of the time you know Every now and then he might be drunk, drive, you know, flying, but he's okay most of the time. You know. No, they have to be 100% all the time. You're absolutely right. Yep. And this, and police officers, because they have that power, because we've entrusted them to serve and protect and to be above the law from that, well, not to be above the law, but, but to hold themselves and we hold them at a higher regard because they've been given that, that faith and that trust. Mm-hmm. And so they have to be held accountable for it. You know, at, at, yeah, 100%, 120%. Well, and it'll be interesting to see how this incident um, really turns the conversation into just greater institutional failures as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I'm hesitant to have really any, too many opinions. Like I feel like my role right now is to do a lot of learning and listening. Why? As a white person? As a white person, but also just as a person who is not so educated on some of the matters I should be educated on before having any kind of opinion. And there's a lot of things I'm not well educated on that I feel like are part of this greater conversation about institutional failure. Mm-hmm. There's no quick solution to this because it's, you know, it's systemic. Right. Um, it, you know, it took you 400 years to get into this mess. It's, it's going to be more than 50 years to get you out of it. Um, and, you know, I, I look at some of the things that happened, you know, post-civil rights and, and even, you know, um, during the time when um, when the federal government even broke up family homes, black family homes, homes that if you happen to uh, be on any type of public assistance, in order for you to be on public assistance, you could not have a man in the house if you were a woman with kids. Wow. And so it was things like that that were systematic Mm-hmm. And, and tearing families apart. And statistically, it's proven, and I'm, you know, this is not being made up at all, that you know, um, kids who come from, from a two-parent household end up thriving a lot better than the ones who have single-parent households. Mm-hmm. And so by you breaking up the family like that, it didn't help things, to put it that way. Um, so, but that's just one of the many things that has, that have happened, um, uh, from an institutional perspective over, over the decades that has to be somehow 
you know, converted and changed. And that's not going to happen overnight. Well, and that's exactly what you're talking about is exactly where I feel like I need to be better educated, but we all need as a, an American society, we all need to be better educated in how these systems were formed, but also what systems are so fractured and so broken, they can't be repaired and we need to start something new right? versus our systems that could actually be refined and reformed. That takes right. a lot of education and a lot of, um, well, a lot of the long game vision and being willing to be in it for the long haul. Um, especially when we talk about some of these systems that have, that are dealing with, homelessness and mental health crisis and our racism in this country. There's a lot of issues that have to be looked at in terms of, can we reform or do we need to just start over? <laughs> well, um, they say that uh, a democracy, well, our democracy at this particular point is probably at its most critical point in time mm -hmm. um, because all of our, all of the, the pillars of democracy are failing at one time. And this is the first time that that's ever happened. Yeah. Um, I was listening to NPR. I think I wrote her information down. I was listening to NPR over the weekend and there was an author by the name of Susan Medler, M-E-D-L-E-R, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And uh, there's a book and I didn't get the title of the book, but there's basically, she was talking about the four downfalls of democracy. Okay. And number one, economic inequality. Mm -hmm. Number two, expansiveness of presidential powers. Number three, political polarization. Number four, racism or nationalism. Right. Those are the four pillars of democracy. And she went on to say that in our, in our history, none of them have ever been solidified completely. Mm -hmm. But there's always been one or two that have still remained somewhat strong. Mm -hmm. This is the only time in history where all four are are in dire straits of collapsing. Right. Um, we came close uh, with Watergate. Mm -hmm. But Republicans chose America and the Constitution over the presidency, over the president. And Republicans, you know, denounced Nixon for what he did. This time around, Republicans are letting Trump do whatever he wants. And so the expansiveness of presidential powers, that's the one that is making us all four of those pillars to be, you know, compromised at this particular point. Because there's always been, you know, economic inequality. Right. We, are, we, we know that um, um, political uh, polarization, mm -hmm. there's been that, but not to the point of the, to where we're at now. And racism and nationalism, 
is at an all-time high. So if we don't get shit together, we are, you know, our democracy's in, in serious trouble. I just feel like the most effective righteous indignation and protest comes from a place of real understanding and education about where we came from and why we are where we are to have that protest and that righteous indignation because it, it really informs the right kind of protesting, the right kind of demand for change, the right something. Yeah, and I'm sure yeah. that's just coming from my own sense of there's just so many layers and so many complexities and things that I don't understand. And I, now is the time that I have to understand them to be a responsible citizen. And that makes that, that goes for both of us too. You know, yeah. I'm not as educated as I should be uh, about, you know, history and the circumstances that, that, that led us to this particular point in time. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to think that I know a little bit more than the average person, mm -hmm. but I still have a lot to learn. Still have a lot to learn. And we really can't dictate or navigate our future without knowing what our past was. Right. Um, and also, I know this is cliche-ish, but, you know, we, if we don't know what our past was, we're, we're doomed to repeat some of the things in history that, that we are ashamed of. We've got to be better uh, and we've got to do better. One of, uh, my, one of my Angelo's quotes uh, in the documentary uh, that we, that we uh, covered was, uh, when you know better, you do better. Hmm. You know? Hopefully. And that, yeah, that's the hope. <laughs> that once we figure out something is not working right this way, we should change course, you know. This makes me think of a time I was in Mali, one of the poorest places on the planet. And I was staying out in this little village. Um, specifically, the story was about surviving in, in extreme poverty. And we were staying with a kind of with some families and they just had some huts. And, you know, we we're kind of camping out there with them to do this story. And there was a 14 year old boy that was from an even more poor village than the one we were in. And it was so poverty stricken that one of the relatives had sent him into this village to try and elevate know, see himself a little bit, maybe yeah. see if they could afford to get him an education and send him to the local school, 14 years old. Then we're sitting on the bench and um, I had the translator there with me and I was just asking him questions. And I said, what, you know, what do you want to do? If you get a chance to go to school, what would you like to study? And he said, I'd, I'd like to study history. Like, really, history? Why is that? And he said, because the more we understand about history, the more we can understand about ourselves. Mm. Wow. That's profound from a little kid. Coming from where he comes from. Yeah. You know, who, generally survival is the first thing on your, the forefront of your mind. Right, right. And he, and he wanted to teach history. He's like, I want to understand history so I can understand more about us, and I want to be a teacher. Mm. Wow. Pretty profound. And I, and I think that speaks to where we are as a global population, as a species on this planet. We've come as a species, I feel like we've come a ways, you know, we're not sort of walking around with clubs attached to our belts and beating people randomly in the streets. <laughs> like, 
I don't know. Like, I feel like since the Middle Ages, we've come, you know. The majority of us. <laughs> exactly. The clubs have just been, you know, they're just uh, automatic or semi-automatic <laughs> weapons now. They're not clubs. No, you're right. See, that's it. That's the thing. Like, have we really actually come that far? And and that's, I guess that's the big question. And I know. I, I think at, you know, when it's all said and done, your primal instincts always kick in and they're, they're no different than what they were back, you know, eons ago. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was saying when all of this melee was happening and we were on, uh, here in Chicago during the uh, unrest, uh, we were on city, citywide curfews where people had to be in by eight o'clock and can't go back out to six o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we were, and with the, all of the anarchy that, that was taking place, I was like, we're actually no better than a non-democratized third world country. Hmm at certain points, you know, uh, with, we're just like a, a couple of riots away or a couple of, you know, incidents away from just being no different, you know? So a lot of times we think our society, we put our society up on a pedestal and say we're better than some of the other countries that don't have democracies, but right. we're, we're not that far from them. And figuring out what it, what our roles are, what our roles should be. We're not all, we have to have different roles in society in order to see society evolve and make, and have these change. And like you and I have a particular role in, in sharing stories and telling stories, you know, just really deciding that we all have some particular role in moving our communities and our societies forward but that takes us finding out what that role should be. Yeah, I think, I think you're right in that. I think if we look at it, if we think about it too much, we, we, we at least me, I become overwhelmed. Mm. <laughs> it's like, you know, what can I do? You know, I'm just a little bitty, you know, one person in society. Um, how can I possibly make a difference in, in the trajectory of, of where, you know, we as a nation goes. Mm -hmm. But then when you sit back and you think about, okay, my role is to be able to possibly, you know, tell stories and um, um, tell them effectively enough to make someone think about how they perceive their life. Right. And uh, maybe they may want to do some changes or maybe they may, may want to uh, do things that help the betterment of, of our society at large. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I look at it from that perspective, yeah, I can contribute in my own, you know, small way. So, right. And you don't generally have any control over the ripple effects. So just by being authentic to what you feel compelled to do yeah. and being honest with that, then your hands are off in terms of the ripple effect. I mean, even just sharing your life and your story with me today, you don't know what young person's going to hear that. And it completely changes the trajectory of where they're headed and your films and everything you've been involved in the interns that you take on, like there, there's no, you just have to believe that this is what I feel like I'm supposed to do. This is who I am. I feel compelled to do these things. My hands are off in terms of the ripple. Yeah. And, um, let 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 the uh, let the ripples 
flow as they as they need be. At that point, you have no control anyway. Right. You know, you just uh, you're just an innocent bystander at that point. Right. Kind of seeing what happens. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up um, with one last question. What are your thoughts on? There's so much controversy and conversation about the conversation and what the conversation should be. What are your thoughts on this particular scenario and instance in the black community and racism turning into a greater conversation about minorities and um, inequalities in general? Do you think it should be focused or do you see it as being useful to become this broader conversation? I don't know. I think, I think maybe it should be, you know, one term on one hand, I think it should be focused but then on the other hand, I think it should be broad enough so that uh, it enables people from all walks of society to participate. Um, I think that um, you only get a few times in, 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 in your life or in our society where you can actually make a difference mm -hmm. in the trajectory of which way we go. And I think this is one of those times uh, where a uh, course adjustment can take place. It's just a matter of, of how much of a, of a turn are we going to do? You know, is it a little turn or is it a big turn? You know, if we're on this road that leads to a particular destination, are we completely, you know, taking a new path or are we gonna stay on the same road and just, you know, kind of maneuver around the bumps and the detours? Um, and I, I don't know, I'm not savvy enough to make that, that, that call. <laughs> as to which way we go, but um, I know we have to do something because mm -hmm. if we don't, um, you know, we will all perish together. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. But I want to end on a better note than that. Yeah, I was like, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to, go. yeah, just uh, share with me that I haven't, you know, we've, we could talk for hours, but. Um, I'd like to say that um, it's important, it's extremely important for us to collectively always have dialogue. Mm. Um, because without dialogue and, and, and conversation, um, we are doomed to fail for sure. So um, if, if, if anything, um, that we can learn from, from what we're going through now is to be able to communicate and to have constructive uh, conversation with one another, with one another. And we may not, we may not agree on all points, but the fact that we are having a conversation uh, means that there is hope for not only our generation, but the generations that follow us. Right. I think that's a great note to end on. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and do this. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. I look forward to following where, I look forward to following your trajectory to hear about how your work 
evolves and if you get a chance to do some narrative films i would definitely like to do a follow-up and hear how that's going thank you for the opportunity um i'm normally not um uh, spouting about because i'm normally behind the camera so um this gives me an opportunity to uh, express myself in ways that I normally don't. So I appreciate the conversation. Great. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. If you would like to be alerted to new episodes as they're published, be sure to subscribe to the Random People Show wherever you get your podcast. A big thanks to Max Diaz and his band Wires for the intro music and to CircuVision for the outro music. If you would like to recommend someone for the show, you can email us at hpimedia.com and put RPS in the subject line. Or you can post about them on Facebook or Instagram and tag or mention the Random People Show. I'll meet you in the next episode, and in the meantime, keep being curious.